Welcome back. I am Larry Wilmore, and this is Black on the Air. Man, I'm still on the LeBron high, being a Laker and all that. I'm going to be in this high for a while, and I love when people say, uh, Larry, are you happy about LeBron? Stop it. Just stop it. He's a Laker. Of course I'm happy. End of conversation. No debates. I don't want to hear about stats. LeBron's a Laker. I love LeBron. <laughs> End of story. That's how the equation works. Player, Laker, Laker gets love from Larry. <laughs> It's really that simple. But um, so I'm very excited on today's show is my pal, Trayvon Free, um, very talented writer. I've had him on before. We talked about the Obama paintings. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. And I thought, you know, I need to have Trayvon on for a full episode. I'm not doing like my normal weigh-in. Trayvon's just hanging out here, and we're just going to talk. But Trayvon, has, he has a very interesting just story of how he got to where he is. And I thought it would be interesting if you guys heard his story. And then to talk to him about what he's doing right now, some of the projects, and just talk about the world and all that kind of stuff. Just hanging out with Trayvon. That's what today yeah. Today is just hanging out with Trayvon. <laughs> which, you I'm know, there could be a lot worse things, you guys. Trayvon, <laughs> by the way, Trayvon, you are the new six degrees person, possibly. I, you know, somebody, right? else, somebody else said You that. are. You're going to be that person. Imagine in 10 years. I'm saying this, you guys, because Trayvon's worked with everybody already. You know, But in 10 years, no one's going to be able to touch him. Kevin Bacon's going to go, fuck, man. How many people have you worked with? You know? But I say that in a very complimentary way because I'm a huge fan of Trayvon. I was uh, from the beginning when I worked with him on The Daily Show back in the day. But welcome to the show, Trayvon. Thanks for having me, Larry. Appreciate it. Um, so a lot to talk about with you, um, things you're doing right now and all that stuff. But uh, I do want to go back to how you got started in this business we call show. Because you started as a basketball player, mm -hmm. a college basketball player. Right. right. Where did you play, Bon? Uh, Long Beach State. Long Beach State. Yeah, right. local. Right. Yeah, local boy. <laughs> yeah, Which I, I still don't know why you're a Yankees fan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that was a, that was a, I just grew up in a household that was watching Yankees games. Oh, okay. And that was all I knew. Like, right. And I wasn't a baseball fan, so it was just like the yeah. only team I know is this team. Yeah. And But you love the Yankees. Oh, yeah, I do. I've Because right. I— so I've spent like years growing up with them, through right. the, like the good years, the great years, right. in like the early two thousands, and then like the bad years. Yeah. Up until now, we're good again, and I'm like, yeah. But I love that you didn't have territorial allegiance, you know. No, I kept mm -hmm. I kept pretty much every other team. I was a Rams fan. Yeah, I'm a Lakers fan. Right. But that was like all the teams I grew up with on TV. Yeah. Um, and where did uh, you grow up? Compton. Oh, you grew up in Compton. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I went to Con I went to Dominguez High School, Tyson Chandler, Tayshawn Prince. Yeah. Did you have brothers uh, and sisters? Uh, I have a sister. How is she younger or older? Twenty. She just turned twenty-seven. Uh -huh. How old and are you? And thirty-three. Okay, so she's younger. Yeah. Right. Um, and so you grew up with the younger sister. You were the older brother. Yeah. In Compton. And she uh, she's a school counselor now. Were your parents uh, together growing up? Or no, my mom when I was growing up was married to my sister's dad. You, wait. Okay, your mom's married to your sister's dad. Yeah. I'm like, wait, what kind of, what is that? And then I thought, oh, actually, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so you went to Cal State Long Beach yep. playing basketball. What did you think you were going to do at that point? Because where did you go to high school? Dominguez. Okay, so Dominguez, by the way, one of those basketball powerhouse yeah, power type house. schools. Yeah, we if won you, a national championship my freshman year. Not surprised. <laughs> you know, Southern right. California, Dominguez, <laughs> you just hear that name and go, man, they, you know they right. got some players. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so 
And there's probably, I'm guessing there was probably stars in your eyes at that point. You yeah. Because you, were you always tall? Yeah, I was like always, always the tallest mm-hmm. person. From birth, my mom said I was too big for the right. little thing. They put the, what's it called? The, <laughs> but the, the, the bassinet or whatever the thing is in the hospital. I was going to say bayonet, but I'm like, that's a gun, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah but I've, I've, right. I didn't have a growth spurt. I was always really? too the biggest kid. Wow. So you have an identity of a big kid. Yeah. Because some big guys have don't have that identity because they have that growth spurt yeah. when they get older. No, I was like, uh, I was five, nine in fifth grade. Wow. So how did that affect you growing up? Did you feel like an outsider because of your height? Or I definitely did stood out. I got a lot of like, I couldn't, I got in trouble a lot because kids would do things and then I would do it and I'd be the one who get caught because like I'm the, one, I'm the one you can see uh-huh. <laughs> and but I also got pulled onto like every sports like uh-huh. everything right and then that translated into uh, people wanting me to be on like AAU and all that kind of stuff sure and Were so you, I, did you have sports talent at that age or did that come later no I I was like pretty good from the beginning okay so you had uh, natural yeah, ability. yeah yeah i just like kind of just had it naturally mm-hmm. and then i had some pretty good coaches um and then once i got to middle school that's when all the like high schools were like kind of doing that illegal recruiting yeah right, right. They're, like not supposed yeah. to be recruiting but they're like coming by like who's who we didn't say anything right <laughs> right how do you like how do you end up at dominguez how does everybody end up at dominguez like, well you kind of know how but right um yeah i ended up there Thinking I was, like, at some point going to, like, play basketball professionally. Were you thinking that? Was that in your eyes? Or you're like, okay, I'll probably go pro in that time. I mean, yeah, I was. Based on the track you were on at the right, time. Right. I felt like I was on the right track. I was a McDonald's All-American nominee. That's what I mean. It wasn't like, unrealistic. Yeah, I'm, I'm not even like, saying this as no, a totally. pipe dream. Yeah, you yeah, were right like, to think that. Yeah, yeah, I was all state multiple years, like, mm-hmm. average a double-double my senior year. Did like, you have a handle? Uh yeah, I could play three, four, or five. Oh, so it it made me like an attractive like wing center player. For, did you have hops? I did. Uh, I I could jump. Not anymore. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, at the time, like um, yeah, I I was I was I was very skinny. Like mm-hmm. I was tall, and I wasn't that heavy, so I could move pretty right. well. You had good mobility. Um, yeah, and. Uh, so you got I, recruited by Cal State Long Beach? Yeah. You, I'm sure you got recruited oh, all yeah, over the place. Oh, yeah. I got recruited all over the place. Why the, did you the, stay close to home? It was funny because, like, I had my—I kind of had my heart set on Brown was recruiting me really hard. Really? Yeah. Like, I was getting recruited That's by a lot of the Ivy League schools. Uh-huh. I, I had an academic to Duke. Uh-huh. But I was like, if I go to if I go to Duke and, like, walk on, I'm just going to sit on the bench for four years. And I was like, I wanted to play. Right. And so I— Did Marcellus Wiley went to Columbia— did I he? think, yeah, I think so. I think he played football there. And yeah, I, yeah. I didn't, um, I didn't know like what to do. And then like mm-hmm. all the big West schools were recruiting me, mm-hmm. and uh, I was like, well, there's UC Santa Barbara and like all this. Stuff. The only reason why I didn't go to Brown was because my senior year, I had a three point nine nine GPA. So you were a, a smart kid too. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, like my mom would not have it any other way. I couldn't yeah. play unless. <laughs> That's hilarious. And so. Uh, mm-hmm. I got all because I, I got a C in algebra. Fucking algebra. And I like, I hated it so much. Stupid and algebra. at like maybe like two or three months before graduation, uh, the brown people were like, can mm. you retake this class? And I'm like, well, n- no. Like, Wait, <laughs> hold on a second. I, 
three point nine 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 isn't good enough. Yeah, and that was and that was my as an and you're an athlete. Yeah, I was an athlete, and mm. that was my cumulative over the four years I, too. That's ridiculous. Like my my sophomore year, I had a four point Right. And uh, my junior year, I think I had a three nine. And then my senior year, I had a three nine. And what year was the algebra class? Uh, that was my senior year. Oh, um, no, actually, I think that was junior year. I think because senior Probably. year, I did, yeah, because senior yeah. year, I didn't even have that many classes. Now that I think right. about it, yeah. So it was junior year that I got the C in the class, right? And uh, and I was just like, you know what, I'm I. People were like kind of begging me to stay close yeah. to home in my family and that kind of thing. And I was just like, you know what? Um, it's still Division One, and it's like a new coach, you know. So I'm just gonna stay here and go mm-hmm. to Long Beach. And uh, we went to the tournament, so we had like we had a good team. Like we weren't. And you said you had Tyson Chandler on your team. On my high school team, yeah. Oh, he was on your high school team. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, he went straight to the pros from college. From high school, he didn't go to college. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Okay. Um, yeah, and then I hurt my knee my sophomore year. Mm. Had surgery. And what kind of injury was it? I tore my meniscus in practice, mm. and uh, it was it was like a bad tear where like when they repaired it, yeah. there was not a lot of cartilage left, and so it wasn't. They the the doctor told me I shouldn't play anymore. I feel like the meniscus really has no purpose except to be torn and fuck you up. <laughs> right, it's just like a thing <laughs> yeah, that like might like, get in the way. Exactly, <laughs> so like, it did. Meniscus, why are you even there? <laughs> <laughs> and it like it fucked me out of my. Uh, my uh, scholar, not my scholarship, but out of my my last two years. So, um, were you able to play again? I played one more year. Mm. Actually, we were talking about this in the room today. If I went back to school to get a master's degree, I would have one year of basketball eligibility left. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, if you went back now? Yeah, if I went back oh, now. Because wow. I never played all four years. So, technically, I still have a year of NCAA eligibility left. You could go in for like what, like two minutes and rebound. Right, right. <laughs> if I really wanted to, I could go play right. college basketball. But I'm never gonna fucking never gonna do that. Okay, so um, you're injured. Your life up to this point had been geared towards going pro. Right. You must have had. I mean, there must have been a a lot of things going through your mind, and that's a very vulnerable age. Yeah. You know, nineteen. Did, yeah. Talk to me about that time in your life. So, like, when that happened, mm-hmm. up until that point, I had only thought about basketball, but I was—I knew I was good at other things, mm-hmm. and I didn't know where I wanted to pivot. Did you know you were funny at that time? Um, not in the sense of writing or, like, performance. In a professional I, way. Like, I knew, like, I had always been the silly person, like, mm-hmm. and people, like, my family know me, knew me as that person, mm-hmm. but I never focused it anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so when I got hurt, uh, my counselor, she, she put me in contact with a professor from the film department who, because she, she knew I liked to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was also teaching a stand-up comedy class at the time. So when we... When she put us in contact, it was over the summer, and he was like, he's like, come to my, come watch my class mm. do the stand-up thing. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I went and I watched. And I was like, oh, that was fun. And he was like, you should do my stand, take my my class. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know if I want to <laughs> like, do stand-up. I was like, I, I kind of want to write, but I don't, I don't know if I want to perform. And he's, right. he's like, go home. He's like, do this. Go home, write two pages of jokes, and then we'll just go from there. Nice. So I'm like, cool. I went home. I wrote two pages, and I sent. I emailed them to him, and 
a half an hour later, I get an email from him that says, fuck basketball. This is what you should be doing. <laughs> wow. And the film teacher said that? Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, well, I guess it's worth a shot. So I took well, the— This is like one of those angel moments I always show, <laughs> where there's an angel looking out for you. Right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so— when when that happened, I was rehabbing that whole summer anyway. I mean, if you hadn't been injured, this yeah. mean this yeah. intervention may not have happened, right? Yeah. And so I took the class and uh we the final is the same thing that I went to before, which is the performance mm-hmm. uh of your stand up of your five minutes. But now you, you're in it. Yeah, but now I'm in it. Right, so you right. over the course of this of this See, uh-huh. of the semester you're working on your five minute set and you're like learning about stand up and we're right. watching stand ups in class uh-huh. and learning different types of comedy styles and that kind of thing do you remember any of your jokes um come on oh man um, I remember some of my early ones <laughs> I, you know I have I have this set on DVD in storage but the one thing I remember from it is I was so and this kind of actually became a staple of my, like, still what I do. Okay. Um, I was so nervous that um, when I got on stage, the first thing I said ha- was not a part of my set at all. Okay. The lights on the stage were insanely bright, like okay. super bright. Where, where was this, this performance? Is the, at? This is at the Ice House in Pasadena. Oh, Ice House. Yeah, I love yeah, the Ice House. In the, in the annex room. Yes, I've worked there many times. And uh, I get up there and I turn around and look at the crowd and I can't see like anyone wow. except for like this girl who came who I had a huge crush on. No. <laughs> no first stand up performance. Yeah, it was a terrible idea. Like. Terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, that's a bad um, idea. And uh, so the first thing I said is like, man, these lights are so bright. I was like, usually when I see lights this bright, I have to turn around and put my hands up or something like that. You said that out of nervousness. Yeah, yeah just out of like, wow. out of nerves. And it got a huge laugh. And then like, the nervousness kind of just subsided. First tackle, yeah, man. You get, like exactly. Football, like yeah. you get that first hit, you're yeah. like, yeah, now we're playing the All game. All right, okay, now the right. game's up. <laughs> right? Oh, you motherfuckers want to play? Okay. <laughs> I turned to Bernie. Oh, you Mac. gonna laugh? Turned to Bernie Mac from Def Comedy Jam. Yeah. <laughs> I ain't yeah. scared of you, motherfucker. You motherfucker. And so uh, I did. That was my first Daily Show, which I'll, I'll tell you in a second. Yeah. Okay. Um, same type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I did my five minutes. And I like, I crushed. Nice. And it was the most amazing feeling. Yeah. And the woman who at the time was producing this show at the improv, uh-huh. she was going to pick like three people from our class to do her show. Uh-huh. And she, they, but they did like a, a first place, second place, third place thing in the actual thing, just like because. Right. And I won. Nice. <laughs> and so, uh, and the girl who you had a crush on? Uh, yeah, it worked. It worked out nice, for a little nice. bit, but that's a whole nother <laughs> how that ended. Different well, you story. had your you uh, had the comedy juice. Yeah, when you get off stage, you have comedy yeah, juice. Yeah, you're, you're like feel. It's like that. You're like uh, a demigod at that moment. <laughs> right. It like comedy juice. It lasts for most of the night. It right. starts to wear off. You know, about four hours after you're set. Right, it's such a high. <laughs> yeah. And then, next day, the juice is gone. Right. By the way. But you like right. want to go do it again. You yeah. like <laughs> yes. it's like a drug. You're like, I gotta chase that feeling of okay. the room full of people laughing. And yeah. so, so winning first really, I was hooked. Clarified in your mind, it gave yeah. you that drug. It gave you the comedy drug. First, yeah. you were curious about it. Right. This is interesting. That response that you got, and the fact that you ad libbed it. Right. And that's a professional joke. That's not just. 
people like you, right? And then your friends, and they're laughing. That's a good joke. Yeah. yeah, and I, it was, I was like, oh, maybe I can do this. Yeah, and then I just started. I was already living in LA, so I'm like, I'm around these clubs, right? And um, I started doing shows at the at the. Uh, Pasadena at the Ice House, mm-hmm. and I started getting on shows at the Laugh Factory. I actually weirdly subverted the entire system. Really? What do you mean? Because like I never did open mics. Really? I never did open mics because that is. I think the, the fact that I was a writer first made me write better material, and it made people think I had been doing comedy longer than I had. Nice. And so people would put me on their shows. Thinking I had done, thinking I had been doing comedy for like three or four years, right? When I had been doing it for like a month. That's interesting. And I so, had that because I was an actor already, right? And so I had the performing the perform- part. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I knew how to write a joke because nice. I like I had been a stand-up comedy fan my whole life. I just never. So in your saw mind, myself, you were preparing for this moment for years and years and years without even knowing it. Without even yeah. knowing it, right? And so when I started doing shows in L.A., I was getting on like the big. Jay Davis Tuesday night comedy show at the Laugh Factory, which at mm-hmm. the time was like one of the biggest shows in the city, and like mm-hmm. doing the improv shows mm-hmm. and like doing, and I just wasn't doing open mics. Were and you then, intimidated by that? Because now you're with people who do it for a living. Yeah, like um, I mean, yeah. I remember at the time like Dan Cook was like the biggest comedian on the planet, <gasps> and I like hmm. I did a show where I was like I went ahead of him, like he was like after me, like mm-hmm. we're on the same show, and I'm like. This is fucking crazy. <laughs> like yeah. I've been doing comedy for like a month and a half. Mm-hmm. And I just like I'm on a show with Dan Cook or whatever. And um then I just that turned into meeting Russell Peters, who then became kind of like my comedy kind of uh, mentor. Yeah, guru. mentor. Mm-hmm. And now that's a guy who that's a stand-up stand-up. Yeah. Yeah. He's it doesn't like, get better in terms of somebody who really has just has figured it out yeah. for years and years. Yeah, he's like the mm. guy who he's made so many careers yes. by taking people on the road with him and like putting them out there to the world. Right. In front of, like the fact that he could take a person who's been doing like small rooms, the improv, the mm-hmm. factory, and just be like, hey, come do the road with me and wow. perform in front of 10,000 people. That's awesome. So you, like, so you went on the road with Russell Yeah, Peters? so like I went like the first time, I remember the first time he took me to like one of his road shows, it was a theater of 3,000 people. Mm-hmm. And up until that point, I had only been doing like the clubs. So I'm like, right, right. like 75, exactly. 150. Right, right. Drunk. Like, right. right. And I'm like, 3,000. Like, this is going to be crazy. And like the whole way there, I'm just like, fuck, like 3,000 people. Mm. And then after, when I do it, you walk out on the stage and you see the sea of people yeah. and you get that first laugh and then it all goes away and you just become yeah. like, you're just like you're surfing. You're it's just a like, whole different experience. It is. It? Like, it's it's, it's almost a Zen-like thing that right. happens when you have that big of an audience and when they connect with you, there's nothing else like it. Yeah, it's yeah. so different. Than it's big, different than a club thing. And the, the club yeah. feels, it's it's got that intimacy where yes. you're kind of like, you can see everyone's faces right. 
and you're like almost like the I, the, the circus guy like with the lion in I, the that's chair. That's what I was going to say. I feel like a club atmosphere. You're more like a caged animal yeah, that, that, exactly. is a, that is this curiosity. Right. And you have to keep doing different tricks right. to keep people interested yeah. in everything. And you surprise them with that. Sometimes you throw shit at them like right. a monkey does right. or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right. But when you're on like in a theater and there's yeah, like 10,000 people. Now you're, you're like, at the Louvre, you know, right. and they're looking at this. Oh. You're like performing. Yes, yes, yeah, like, exactly. You can only see the front row or like right. the first two rows and it becomes like a whole different experience and now you're also your chances for laughs are so much greater because it's just a bigger group of people yeah so like if you get 50 percent on one joke 80 percent on another joke, right like, does you that's can a hear, lot of people yeah, that you are can still hear laughing. the sounds of like yeah three thousand people still laughing and that you can joke. turn the room against itself too <laughs> right you say well these people got it right. sorry people over and here. then you start hearing the laughs kind of like <laughs> it's it's such a crazy experience right did yeah. you did you have to learn how to pause because yes What's great about working those rooms is you learn how powerful a pause is. Right. You know, where you're so excited in the club situation, you think you have to fill every moment with talking or something. Yeah, that, that silence feels so much different in a club yes. than in a, in a theater. And it's, the yes. laughter— it's threatening in a club, especially if you're not used to it. In a theater, it feels like powerful. Well, it's theatrical now. Right. You know, now it has meaning. So right. it allows you to find deeper meanings now once you, you're you used to that. You go, oh, yeah. there's something else in here. because, And then they laugh in places where you don't expect it. You yeah. go, well, what are they laughing at? <laughs> right. Because I didn't even think that was funny. Right. That was part of the setup. Yeah. And, and, like, and, and then you start physicalizing like your whole body becomes different sometimes. Right. And too. you have yeah. so much space, yeah. which also changes the way you function. Now, did you stand still or did you did you pace like Chris Rock, that type of thing? Or in the beginning, something in between? In or? the beginning, I was a pacer. Now I'm very much a like pretty much within a three, four foot box. Because you're a very um, cerebral comic. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you're very... Your words are very important. Right. So I don't want to distract you. Yeah. I don't want to distract people to hear your words. Yes. Right. So like there are times where like I'll move to a different part of the stage, but I won't say what I think you need to hear while I'm moving. I'll like I can, okay. I might be doing some setup while I'm moving, but not very much. But right. like when I'm doing the meat of it, I'm gonna be standing still talking to you. Got it. Looking at you. And so like one thing you definitely have to learn early on is the laughter in a theater is like a wave. Mm-hmm. And so you may not hear it when you say the punchline, right. but then you start to talk and then it like makes its way to the front of the theater. And yeah. then you're like, oh, I, sh- I have to wait yes. for the timing of the laughter. That was a super surprise to me. Yeah. I did a joke and I was like, oh, nobody laughed. <laughs> and then like literally as I'm thinking that, the wave of laughter came toward the front of the theater. Yeah. And so like, yeah, it's just a different, it's, it's a different beast, different skill set. Yeah. So, you, I'm sure you enjoyed all that, but something in you told you that there's more to this than just performing. You really wanted to keep writing more, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of that came from following your career. I mean, what? that was that was mm-hmm. that's like my favorite part of our relationship is uh-huh. how we met. Yes, do you want to tell the, that story? Cause, yeah, cause so, I because I have mythologized it at this point <laughs> only because my memory is so horrible. <laughs> but so yeah, but I'm sure I have I, all the facts wrong about it. So I, Trayvon and I met. Um, with without me even knowing who he was, yeah, he, it was at an event. Was that at, at the, the director's at, at the DGA or no the WGA theater over okay. on Doheny? Got it. Um, and I do a lot of these things where it's a panel. Yes, exactly, panel things. Sometimes I host them and that type of thing. And it's and usually they're industry events where you're talking about the business. And the writers ones are real interesting because we get real crafty, in right? It. And 
And uh, depending on what it is, it may be a certain genre or something. It's a good way for professional writers to spend some time hearing about how people do it. Right. You know, so that's the kind of event you were at. I yeah, think, it was right? you, Rachel Axler. Oh, it might have been the women's event. I think it was. Yes, because I was the only yeah, guy. Yeah, you were the only guy. Yes. That's right. It was, yeah. it was an event for women writers, and yeah. they asked if I would host it. Right. I was and, a simpatico male. Right. <laughs> right, 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 right. I saw it was like two Daily Show writers are going to be at this panel, mm-hmm. or Daily Show people. And, and I had, so your dream was to write for the Daily my, Show. My dream was the Daily Show. That was yeah. the one show I wanted to write on. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, well, I got to go to this. And actually, I was supposed to go with my friend uh, Lauren Greenberg, who's now head writer of Corden. Wow. And uh, we were both like, trying to get jobs and we yeah. were writing things together and submitting for things together right. and uh, it's so great I, we were actually just talking about how like where we are now compared to where we started together know, and so, uh, so fast. I, I went to that panel and afterwards I remember at, we talked briefly mm-hmm. and I asked you about how to get a writing job on The Daily Show yes and uh, almost a, and we took a picture and almost a year to the day and I, that— And I remember my advice because I always told people this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I always told people, look, just send them something. You never know. I said, a lot of times—it's like that joke people used to tell or whatever it was about the the really good-looking girl who doesn't get asked out to the prom because right. everybody thinks she has a date already. Right, exactly. You know? I'm like, the Daily Show was that for you. Right. Just— how do you know everybody's contacting the Daily Show? Maybe that's what not. it feels like. You yeah, think it that. feels like, but you don't know. Right. Send them your stuff. I said, there's always one piece of advice I always give young writers. So I said, in showbiz, there's always, always room for another good writer. Right. Maybe not for another writer, but always room for another good writer, and always room for another great writer. Right. Right. And so, yeah, I. That was 2011. Right. Almost a year to that day, I got hired on the show. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I remember when you came in for right. a, for a, to a senior to do a piece. correspondent. Yeah, right? which was like a couple weeks after. I was like, Larry, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, who's this tall that can approach me? <laughs> and I was like, security. Like last, <laughs> I was like, it's me from last year. <laughs> and you told me the story, and I was like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. You know, and I still have that picture in my phone. Gave you so a big crazy. hug. I was so happy for you, Trayvon. <laughs> I was so happy for you. And I have to tell you, you're always like a little kid to me. You're, what I mean by that is your enthusiasm. And that's a positive thing I'm saying. You have the enthusiasm that I think allows you to have a long career in showbiz because that little kid enthusiasm and joy for what you do, is, right. it's there in your jokes. It's there. It comes out in your passion for things you're mad about. Too. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's really a good quality to have. I Thank saw you. it from the yeah. beginning. And you shared in our office with Joe Miller. With Joe Miller, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Who, you know, of course, ran the famous Full Frontal. Which yeah, Joe's the best. another intersection there. Yeah, yeah. She, uh, she's the best. She, I, I was so happy to get to work with her again. Joe's the best. There's nobody... Um, like yeah. Joe in the world. Go She's get just, Joe Miller if you want anything done great. Um, <laughs> the smartest the comedy smartest writer per- yeah. ever. I think the smart, still the smartest person I know. Like Completely. Uh, and the most integrity. Yes. Yes. Just like unbelievable. Hi, Joe. We love you. Yes, Joe. <laughs> um, yeah, that, we'll probably both call her sometime this I know, week. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that... That year after... So you learned a lot writing on The Daily Show, right? And yeah. So you have to feel at this point, um, all right, this is what I want to do, you know? Right. Yeah, um, I mean, it was like, I call it Comedy Harvard. It was like going to a, a school mm-hmm. and learning comedy from 
some of the smartest people in the business mm-hmm. and how to put a show together, how to okay, run a show. Okay, what's the biggest thing you learned about that? Oh, man. Um, or maybe some of the things you I would. Learned. I think mm-hmm. the biggest thing I take away from that place is probably not even an actual work thing. It's a how to treat people. Thing. Yes. It's like if, I agree if with you— that make people happy and like where they work, mm-hmm. you can do a show like that four nights a week mm-hmm. and it come out like great. Yeah. And there's a lot of people in show this. We were laughing about this before we started where I joke with Trayvon that he's worked on 10% of the shows in Chobis that have great right. working right. situations because <laughs> so many situations in Chobis are, are terrible. horrible. But you can't complain because you're in showbiz. Right. Like people are like, fuck you, you're in showbiz. Yeah, like, you're like, right. Every yeah. person I've got to work for are just, like they're just the best yeah. people, and I keep not having to end up at a place where I'm like, oh man, I'm going to be in this place till like eleven at night, and right. everyone hates the showrunner, and the showrunner hates his wife, and yeah. we're never going to go home, and like right. any of that kind of stuff. But uh, at, at, if you have an environment like the Daily Show was, where people, the the worst thing that they could do is disappoint. Their boss, yeah, their hold because they they care so they much about what they do. So much, I know. Yeah, like because you respect yeah. him so much, so you want to run through a wall, right. to do whatever it takes. And it like that to me is how I any show I want to run. I want everybody to feel that way. Well, John Stewart's influence, yeah, um, is amazing to me when I think about how he became John Stewart. I mean, he was, you know, a comic and he was hosting shows on MTV, and right. when he found his voice. You know, in The Daily Show, I think that affected everything around him, you know, because there's so much integrity in John's voice. Right. And there was so much integrity in that building when you just walk in, you can feel it. Yeah. And it is what you say. People cared about what they were doing. You know, you get the fuck ups and answers and that kind of stuff. But the energy in that building, people thought they were doing something good. And John was a tough boss, but a fair boss. Yeah. Tough and fair. And you can't beat that, you know. You— but he made you better. <laughs> he made you better because he would not allow the material to be substandard. Right. You know, and you were scared to have it substandard, yeah. <laughs> not because he'd yell at you, but because you disappointed. Yeah, like <laughs> you know? wanted to be the one to yeah. make him like kill over laughing or the yes. one, that moment right. where he like points and goes, yes, that's yes. it. Like be- you wanted to do that. Because he was so smart. My, some of my, I had already won an Emmy and a Peabody when I got to The Daily Show and like I was like <laughs> anybody else going, man, I got to please try. Right, right. <laughs> you know, because yeah. he's so fucking smart yeah. and has so much integrity. And I was so lucky because my relationship with him was a little different right. because there was a mutual respect there. So we would talk about issues and it wasn't like, okay, Larry, here's the thing. You know, the subject is this and you guys are going to do that. No, we would start with something. I would say, well, John, let me tell you what the real deal is. Right. You know, <laughs> and I come in and he go, Ooh, you know, and, and we would actually discuss it for a while and right. debate it. And you sat in some of those, yeah. you know, sometimes I'd turn it all the way around. Basically. Yeah, we would sometimes like get Remember? to lunch and all of a sudden be like, actually the new take is this. Yeah. But, and then the whole morning scripts get thrown out. But John respected that the fact, like he wasn't like some showrunners who would be intimidated by a voice that was disagreeing with him. Right. Because most showrunners in Hollywood, this is just how it is for you people who don't know out there. If w- what they say goes, they're the golden goose that's laying the golden eggs all the time, and everybody's eating those golden scrambled eggs, and that's what you're <laughs> going to eat, and right. nothing you can do about it, you know. <laughs> but one day somebody says, "Can we have a turkey sandwich?" Right. <laughs> and he's like, "Fuck you! You're supposed to eat these right. these golden scrambled <laughs> eggs that I'm making," you know. 
But John was always interested in the turkey sandwich. Yeah. You know? He wanted to know what you were putting on there. And he know? he was so encouraging to people's voices. Yeah. And and like what made them yes. good, especially like the way he nurtured the correspondence and like completely was so behind. Like what do you the way he would like go through every script and rewrite and be like, do you, you want to say this? Do yes. you want to say, like, yes. he, was, he cared so much about that. He didn't right. want anyone to ever do or say anything that they didn't feel, like, comfortable with or, right. or that, they, that they believed in. And that was, yes. that's so hard to find. Yes. Now, my personal observation of you, Trayvon, is that The Daily Show changed you in several ways, you know. Once, I mean, of course, you're now you're an Emmy award-winning writer, so you're going to be changed in the business, right. the way people look at you and all that stuff. But I think you wanted to be more authentic. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Talk to me about that. The at the time when I got there, I knew I what I believed in and I knew there was a voice I was trying to find. Mm-hmm. And then being around someone like John who was in such command mm-hmm. of his beliefs and his voice. Mm-hmm. It helped. It gave me. And then having that person validate me and nurture me and like right. come to my office and ask me what I thought mm-hmm. about a thing mm-hmm. or like what he should say about a thing personally, mm-hmm. it gave me more courage and, and conviction in my own voice. Mm-hmm. And so as I moved through that place for the four years I was there, I started to fall into more and more of of trusting and believing in what I thought, what I thought was funny, mm-hmm. and in my opinion, going from like when you walk into that room for the first time, it's super intimidating. You don't want to say anything to like right. years later, you're like, no, we're going to fucking have this out because <laughs> right. this is what I think is right. This is what I think is true. And we're going right. to like talk about it. And then we're going to like get to where like we think or I think or you think or whatever we figure out. Mm-hmm. And so when I when I left there, I felt like I had been like rubber stamped by the man mm-hmm. or like now like my opinion, I'm not, I'm no, I'm no longer like afraid to speak up mm-hmm. in a place or because like especially when you're like the only black person in a, in a room mm-hmm. like you're automatically just kind of like on pins and needles <laughs> just because like you got nobody to like look at for that to like co-sign, yeah right? to be like you right. know what I'm saying right brother like right. there's none of that going on so, oh yeah this nigga's telling the truth you gotta <laughs> right. listen to this nigga right. go ahead brother tell right. him there's like <laughs> you just need the hype man there's no so hype like, man I'm gonna throw this out there and yeah. I hope these people get it I hope people understand what I'm trying to say mm-hmm. and yeah it just it freed me up to to really lean into myself as a man as a person mm-hmm. and and the things I felt passionate about saying where it's like I came from the institution of the man who was arguably the most famous person doing it the best are considered the best person to do it mm-hmm. and people expect something from you in terms of like oh you come from that place so obviously you have opinions and you like you th- you think a certain way and you you care about certain things mm-hmm. and i just so happened it just happens to be that i did i had a lot of things i cared about and a lot of ways i wanted to say them or express them whether it was through social media mm-hmm. or stand up or writing right and um once i left there for me the journey was like how do i like take this to the next level mm-hmm. 
And uh, one of the issues you were dealing with is is identity mm-hmm. and your specific identity. Right. Um, do you want to talk to me about that? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, like I grew up in a place where if you're anything other than straight, you don't talk about it. There's nobody to talk to about it. Mm-hmm. So, like, growing up and feeling different and not having a word for it, like, mm-hmm. other than, like, you hear people say gay, but you don't know about anything other than gay. You're like, well, I don't feel like I'm, like, I, I don't feel like a gay person mm-hmm. from what the definition is being told to me is. When you were growing up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so. You felt different growing up. Yes. Okay. And so trying to figure out what that was or how to define it, it was like exhausting mm-hmm. <laughs> because you don't have resources. You there's don't, no examples out yeah, there. Yeah, right? there's no examples. And so mm-hmm. it's like, well, I have a girlfriend and I really like my girlfriend. And mm-hmm. I really like doing things with my That's girlfriend. That's funny. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, but also like, that dude's pretty like hot. Or like, yeah. like I feel the same. You have the same types of feelings, Yeah, right? like I, mm-hmm. why when I look at like, I get that same yeah. feeling and I don't know what that is. That's interesting. And no one's ever talked. I, like, I've never seen it on TV. Do you remember how old you were when you first felt like that? Like 13, 14. So when, when you were I, a teenager. That yeah. was like, that was when I first began to be able to think about it. Okay. Like as a kid, you're like, ah, like something's different, but like you're not like going through puberty, so there's not a lot going yeah. on in that department anyway. Right. But like, like I keep watching Johnny Quest. I don't know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that why. That race Bannon. I don't know what <laughs> <Right>. it is. <laughs> I did watch Johnny Quest, too. That was so funny. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, you don't, like, around 13 or 14, when you're, like, spending more time away from your parents, mm-hmm. around older people, you start to put the pieces together. Okay. Um, was it something you ever felt that you could talk to your mom about? No, like I never felt like my family was so religious. Really? I just didn't feel like it was even, I couldn't imagine bringing it up when I was like 14 years old. And the black community, I'm generalizing, of course, can be very socially conservative, connected directly to religion. Right. Like, what would Jesus do? If Jesus ain't going to do that, sorry, because Jesus is at our cookout as far as we're concerned. (laughs) Right. (laughs) He's making ribs over there. Right. And then you also go to church and you hear it spoken about negatively at church all the time. Yeah. And at the time, I was still, I, as a kid, I was still like, is God a thing? Like, whatever, like you. Sure. And I don't want to go to hell, so mm-hmm. like, what am I doing? Um, and So you have these feelings that were going on from both sides. And yeah. Did you try to ignore it at first? Or? Pre- I mean, for the most part, that's mm-hmm. what I did through all of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I just ignored it. Mm-hmm. I just never... there. Actually, there was. And you're an athlete that also has its set of um, assumptions right. and judgments. Exactly. A locker room can be a horrible place. Right. And at a school to be like honest. that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and not just like any school, like a premier mm-hmm. basketball school like that. Like right. the last thing you want is to be like bullied or whatever the case yeah. may be in a place like that. And mm-hmm. so <clears throat> it was just like, and I also saw the way the kids who people even thought were gay were treated. Yeah. I'm just like, Jesus, like, I'm not going to open myself up to that if I don't have to. Let me tell you some kids are fucking mean. Yeah, like, for, like just yeah. cruel. And so it was like, well, if it would be different if I was faking liking women. Yes. And suffering through that. And it's right. like, well, at least I don't have to fake this part. Right. That's that typical, invis- I call it the invisibility prison that gay people have to go through. 
where you have to pretend not to be something. Yeah. And, you know, but you had a different thing because you right. actually have both of these feelings going right. on. Right. And so I was like, man, like, thank God. I'm like, I don't have to fake my way through the entire thing. It's like, mm-hmm. this is actually real. It just so happened that, like, there's another thing I just can't talk to anybody about. So, so, so was there— because I, th- I think a lot of people don't understand, is, should we just say bisexuality sure. is a term? I think a lot of people don't understand that because it's not talked about a lot. Right. Gays talked about a lot. Right. You know, some of these other things. But this one is not, I used to even joke about it. I'm saying, you guys have nothing to complain about. <laughs> you literally, literally can have your cake and eat it too. Literally. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm like, why is the LGBTQ, why is that B in there? I used to say, you know, yeah, LG, was, I get it. You yeah, know? it was the one that like, mm-hmm. for the longest, it was the easiest to to like make fun of because it, it was thought of as like oh the best of both right, worlds right, right, it was right. like well like now that we we've come further we know more we're like it's actually like people were like suffering mental like mm-hmm. stress and like needed therapy and all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. to deal with the fact that like they were being shunned by two communities and yeah. like the gay community didn't take you seriously and the straight community didn't take you seriously mm. and so then you end up kind of just floating when in actuality like the B represents the most people in the entire group. Wow. It's the largest part of the group. But so it's the, the B most to in- me is like, fuck you, Larry. <laughs> well, <laughs> we no, got but numbers. The it's the most, in- <laughs> but it's the most invisible. Yeah. Like, because oh, right, right, people, right. people are so afraid. People don't take it seriously. So yeah, because saying, people right? don't take it seriously. So, yeah. like, I, like, people will, like, message me about it on, on, on Instagram. Like, uh, I'm getting married, but I, n- I haven't told my wife or my fiancé that, like, I— like also like guys like kind of thing mm-hmm. or like that I'm bi or whatever and you you end up a lot of bi people feel like well you know what they're on the DL I'm just gonna like I like I have a girlfriend so and I like her so why do I and I want to marry her so I don't need to say anything anyway like you know what right. I mean like it's a it's almost like an easy way out where you yeah. can just be like well I like this girl or and like that's fine, and I'm gonna marry her. So what do I need to say anything for? And mm-hmm. people end up choosing that out of like convenience, not because they necessarily want to, because like, it's the it's the path of least resistance exactly in the culture, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, like yeah, it, it's it became for me like around twenty. I mean, I started telling my friends when I was like eighteen, nineteen years old. How did your friends react? They didn't. They were fine. Like mm-hmm. I mean, some of them didn't even believe me. <laughs> like it was, it was just like because people see me and us automatically is now less so because I'm like people know about my show and everything. But but you <clears> are. <throat> it is interesting because we physicalize so many things right. instantly. You know, things have to look like what we think they are all exactly. the time. Exactly, and I don't even, look. And I don't look like what people exactly. think gay looks. And like. it happens with every, even with food. Yeah, food has to look like what we imagine it right. should be. You know. You're six seven, yeah, six seven, tall black man. You know who is good at sports, right? And it's <laughs> everything people think is not that because people right. will say things to me in front of me about gay people, 
and not even realize like wow. you should probably play it safe and like you never know who you're actually talking to because yeah. <laughs> you don't know if the, what that person might be. You're assuming because they what because they're not like talking different and like f- like flinging their hand around or some stereotypical manner you think gay people behave in. Yeah, that you can just say something crazy to them. Like when somebody says something crazy about black people to a light skinned black person, <laughs> and they don't realize. Like <laughs> yeah, I was at Papa John's today and <laughs> just in the back, it's just nigga 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 nigga. What are you guys doing? Back is that how you make pizza? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's how we roll the dough. That's how we we figure out how much them nigga 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 nigga. nigga. <laughs> yeah, you got to roll for three niggas, yeah. and then you flatten it out. <laughs> oh man, if Papa John's in the news. That's why yeah. we're joking about yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. Papa John's in the word. Now it's I don't know how that happened. But yeah, on the conference call, but we'll get to that in yeah. a second. Okay, uh-huh. so so you told a few friends. Yeah, so far I, so good, but you haven't. You haven't told your mom. You haven't no. really come out to the world. No. And coming out as a bisexual male in the black community, in the sports community, is fraught. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I did that after college. Um, and it was, for the most part, publicly, it was fine. I mean, I, I dealt with things with family members. Did it immediately affect—were you in a relationship at the time? Uh no. Did it immediately? I, I was coming out of one. Uh, with the female? No, at the time I was coming out of one with a guy. Okay, so was that your first relationship with the it guy? It was. Yeah. How long was that relationship? Oh, probably like about a year. And do you think coming out of that kind of gave you the impetus to? I think it. I think what ended up happening was going through that experience. I felt like. Why am I like at the time at least when it was like great. Like, I can't, I don't feel like I can share this with my family. Mm. And if this was a woman, like, I could right. immediately call or text or whatever and be like, yeah. I'm at this new Oh, we want to meet her. Right, exactly. And they're all and, and like, happy voices. Exactly. Right. And so over the course of that time, when it was just a secret, I just remember feeling like, man, I like the, I care about this person so yeah. much and mm-hmm. I can't. Can't share. tell anybody, and I was like, I don't want to feel this way anymore. Yeah, I I, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And even though like my handful of friends who knew I could talk to them about it, but yeah, it was like it's not the same. It's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so then, um, I did I did the full full blown come out, and um, it was dicey to say the least. Really? <laughs> yeah. How, what was, was dicey about it? Uh, I mean, everyone everyone in my family didn't take it great. I won't put anybody on blast. That's okay. You are. don't have to. You don't but, have uh, to. I understand. Uh, things are better now. This was yes. like almost 10 years ago now. Wow. Okay. Um, so it's some for some people, it took some time. Yeah. Do you I think mean, they've evolved or do you think they're just more accepting of you? Honestly, you know, what's interesting, I don't know, is because mm-hmm. we don't talk about it very much. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I just started thinking about this as I'm, like, thinking of writing and people are asking me to write books and things. and just, like, going through my life in a certain way. And I find it interesting in the sense that I don't know if people are okay in a way where because they haven't been tested in the sense that, like, I've not brought home a guy. That's like, funny. Hey, everybody, yeah. this is my new, like, right. since, for the, because for the last, like, five or six years, uh, the, the times I've been in relationships, they were women. Yeah. Which is easy. And, but I've not dated a guy and came home. Yeah. And been like, 
basically they've not been put to the test. So I don't I don't know right. I don't know in what form the acceptance is, whether it's just like a hushed, like it's not in my face, so I don't have to talk about it. Yeah. Or is it just like everyone's fine, they just like I just haven't brought anyone home. You're like, like skeptical like, emoji right now. <laughs> right. You're like, yeah, I'm like I don't I honestly don't know how people will feel or how people will take it. Yeah. Um I mean I I do I do definitely know how some people will like my sister give like my sister's the best person on the planet. Like she doesn't care. Um but I mean I can assume it will be fine because it's me. Mm-hmm. But I don't know like people's true feelings because it's not like we just sit around on holidays talking about it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the other thing about being bi is like you because you have the dual thing going on, mm-hmm. it's easy to ignore the one you're uncomfortable with. Wow. It's, See, that's, <laughs> a, that's the part that's – yeah, and that's society fucking with you, you know. Um does that make you want to go to that other side more, or or well, is it, it the opposite? Like when you tell a young person not to do something, then they definitely are going <laughs> well, to like, do it. So Does like it work like me, that? Like, ever? I like in terms for me with dating, it's always about just whoever who you uh, vibe. Who are, yeah, it's yeah. never. I'm never choosing a gender. It's like I'm right. so down the middle. It's just like whoever I'm like. Have a thing with it. That's whatever. Think about it. It actually is the most democratic way to fall in love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, like it it's like, like, hey, if you're cool, I'm, right? Yeah. <laughs> wow, you're sexy, and, right? And so, mm-hmm. when you're not dating anybody, like now, it's to to bring up the male male part, mm-hmm. which it feels. Force like I'm, I'm like I'm forcing you to talk about it. Like I have to bring it up to know that you know about it to keep it in your. You know what I mean? Like to keep it mm-hmm. in your like face so you know like it's a part of my identity. And that's how you kind of always feel where you're like. You mean with your people, friends? What do you mean? Like like family? Like you you mm-hmm. you always people default you as straight. Oh, so you have to remind them. So sometimes. yeah. So oh, like okay. even people like. People ask me like, "Hey, got a wife?" Yeah, like, 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 <laughs> like that kind of thing. Like, right? Like, I remember I was in a. It's it's straight as such the default. Like, I was in an Uber going to the beach this past weekend, and the Uber driver was like, "Yeah, man, going out there to spot some of them ladies." That's and it's hilarious. like, I could be, but Maybe. it could also be like, like you know, Maybe like, it's a little bit of right, both. <laughs> exactly. But like the the assumptions always, yeah, the like heteronormative. Do you think we're at a moment right now where, I mean. Jeez, I mean, since the beginning of recorded time, there's been a straight—I'm going to use the word bias, but that may be an unfair word to use. I'm not sure. But certainly, yeah, straight bias, because that's a clinical term as well. Yeah. You know, are we—do you think we'll lose a straight bias? I think it'll be—I think we'll get better at it, Uh at, like, not having it. But it's But it'll still be the hallmark card, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think because we know, like— LGBTQ people make up roughly 10% of the population. Mm -hmm. It's, and it might be more because people just don't like come out. But, Mm -hmm. and um, and people are acknowledging there's more of a spectrum rather than hard and fixed um, categories. But I think because Mm -hmm. the overwhelming majority of people are heterosexual, it'll kind of stay the norm. I think we'll just get better at not assuming. Right. We'll get better at not looking at a person and going, like, actually, it's funny, like, I've seen it change where, like, people now mm-hmm. will go, um, oh, do you have a girlfriend or boyfriend? Like, and, <laughs> right. it, and, it, and it's done mm-hmm. now. It used to be done. And like, now you when, go, what are you trying to say? Right. Well, well, like, like, throw now, it back at Right. Because <laughs> even that used to be done with a wink. Yes. Like, it was like a joke. Like, when 
15 years ago when like the DL was like a thing and everyone right. was talking about the mm-hmm. and then people were asking like in a skeptical way or in like a winky kind of way now it's just more like a yeah whatever you want like I don't know like mm-hmm. you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend like I don't right. like it's become more like standardized in mm-hmm. a way where it's not a ju- it doesn't sound like judgments being passed it's just like I just want to know like, and yet at the same time I wanted to bring this up because this, I was really angry at this, what I'm about to talk about, you know, because I love you, Trayvon. You're like, you're, you're just my friend. And I love my friends, right? But you got attacked on Twitter for a show you were working yeah. on. And I really took it personally because I know how personal it is to yeah. you. You were developing a show with Issa Rae, our right. buddy. And, uh, and it's your story, basically. Yeah. You're dramatizing in whatever form you're doing. So, right. And then you got attacked on Twitter by the black people. Right. <laughs> but at the, the cookout itself yeah. came after you. Yeah, it was talk, one of those, talk to us about that. When that when before and this, this to me really pulled back a lot of these biases that people don't take the time to reflect on. Right. And say, why am I even thinking this way? Sure. You know, that to me that spoke to a lot of that. But anyhow. Yeah, um, it was it was one of those things that like me and Issa both fully knew was coming. Yeah. And I didn't we, know it would come like that. To be yeah. Honest with I mean, me. you don't know it to I what really degree. Did I <laughs> didn't. You, I thought there'd be like stupid people saying yeah, stuff. But you don't know to what degree, to the degree that like Issa had to publicly like say something yes. about it. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, like they, they can say, okay, Issa, Issa calmed us right, down. Right. But we ain't listening to this nigga. <laughs> this crazy nigga. <laughs> yeah. Like people, people, I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing to wrestle with when you're, a member of the black community where mm-hmm. you're like, my people are still going through a progression when it comes to dealing with sexuality because mm-hmm. of like religion and just homophobia in like rap music and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And even that's kind of dying out mm-hmm. um, in rap music. But the the show got announced and then. And what was the show called? Uh, him or her? Him or her, right? Um, and it was, and what was the the log line? So, the log line was, um, if I remember what they, I sent them like three because sometimes they write something different than what. Yeah, you they them they, to. they did use yeah. a different one than I actually sent them, but it was mm-hmm. just like a uh, half hour comedy that follows the life of the dating life of an Af- a bisexual African American man. It. I think Got that it. was what they put, mm-hmm. and uh, just. My mentions are just lit up (laughs) with, like, black dudes and even some women just, like, this is, like, Issa Rae in Hollywood just emasculating men, the black man, and, like, Mm -hmm. I'm, like, why they keep trying to make black men gay Mm -hmm. and, like, just all this crazy stuff Mm -hmm. and, like, just— it was was just crazy, and I I expected it, so it didn't, like— it didn't bother me in the way that if I'd been blindsided by it, by it, it okay. was more so in the sense of like maybe because I didn't expect the ferocity of it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I was, did. I ex- was more upset. I didn't yeah. expect the intensity of it. <laughs> right. I just expected some of it, and yeah. I was like, there was an overwhelming outpour of support that like shouldn't be ignored. Like it was great, overwhelmingly positive. But the, like the amount of it of negativity, where you just like. I want so much more for us as black people to like not be this. And we're not just we're not picking on the black community because yeah. there's it's, it's, we, of course, you know, black community there's a lot of people who support absolutely and, and tons of allies and all that stuff, but there are not just the black community, but there are many 
communities out there where with, there are these entrenched ideas. Yeah, that, within the black community of like how— just one of them. Yeah, yeah. We, like, we call them hoteps or like yeah. whatever the case may be. Or like it's just these—this faction of people who will never— let go of the idea that black people are supposed to be this way mm-hmm. and that's the way. And it's just not reality. It's just not right. It's not real or true. It's just what they want it to be. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, they were, they came out strong <laughs> about, mm. in opposition. And I also feel like that's why the show is necessary. Mm. So like the people, because part of that is fearing what you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, if you've never seen, uh, I forget. I think it was. A, I forget which outlet it was who tweeted about the show that it was like, "This is the first show with, that will have a black male lead that's not straight." And after since Noah's Ark, which was on Logo, and mm-hmm. um, these would have been the only two that shows. we know of, right? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> that was out and proud about right, it. Exactly. Um, yeah, and so it was like those kind of things were just like we want to keep doing what like Insecure is doing for black women mm-hmm. and what uh, uh, Aziz is doing for Asians and right. Indians on Master of None mm-hmm. and what Donald's doing with Atlanta. Like we want to keep furthering the narrative on who we are as people because for so long we've been confined to this one little box of who right. we are publicly. And Absolutely. it's like, no, there's so many more versions of us there's right. so many facets to being black and it turns out one of those is like not necessarily being straight i mean like right you look at uh the celebration of lena waith and janelle monet and tessa yes. thompson now and it's yes. like overwhelming love and support which i'm like insanely happy about yeah. but you don't see it with men yeah you don't see like it's true I, I i said to someone on twitter i was like find me one mm. gay by non-straight male couple that's gotten as much positive press as Tessa and Janelle. And it's just a, it's such a disconnect from like, I feel like this is my prejudice, but I feel like the public for some reason, I'm not saying it's my prejudice that I hold this, but this is just my opinion looking, viewing the world is that I, I always felt like they like the cartoon version of the black gay male you know, right? And by cartoon, I mean it's always hypersexualized. Yeah, it's a feminized, very like, feminine. Yeah, but you know, to have a different narrative, right? I, people don't seem comfortable. With that. Yeah, it's you know, it's and it's a thing that you just. I think for so long because of how it's been portrayed. Yeah, and. And how, as my uh, old neighbor growing up used to call it the Harlem sissy, <laughs> was the, <laughs> right. he's a Harlem sissy. <laughs> <laughs> she used to say, but like the the way, yeah, like the way uh, male homosexuality has been always been viewed as this like horrible, gross, negative thing, and lesbianism has always been like this like sexy mm-hmm. like thing that men are kind of like chasing after in a way it's mm-hmm. it's the way it's romanticized fetishized fetish, yeah fetishized yeah. is so different that it's an easier pill to swallow yeah Hannah Gatsby talks about this a little on yeah her. have you yeah, ever seen yeah, that yeah, I've, I'm a I'm a acolyte for Nanette like <laughs> I, if, by the way guys if you have not seen Hannah Gatsby's Netflix special please it's amazing. It's so, it's incredible. Where she talks about identity related to these issues and everything. And 
it's more than stand up. It becomes something else. Yeah. I won't uh, spoil. Yeah. I won't spoil for you. If you haven't seen it already, like go. You have now. to see it. Like, it's so good. You know, it's one of those cultural moment type things. I was shocked at it because I just didn't know who she was. You know, it yeah. just the braveness of what she wanted to do with her art. You it's know? incredible, it really and the way is. she strung it together and the way she yes. laid it out was just uh, amazing. Yes, I every. Like once you got past a certain point and it became a little something else. The turn, yeah. Yeah, I'm like every expecting. sentence is a piece of gold. <laughs> yeah, all it of really it. is. Like it's I was I was telling my 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 landlord, I was like, there's like no fat no. on that bone, on that steak when she gets Just, to that part. I know we're like, speaking cryptically, but she really took anger and point of view and humor and mix it in a way you haven't quite seen before yeah. as a, almost a call to action of sorts. Right. You know, it's a, a, it's a transformation back. of stand-up. It I, really I'm is. I'm happy exists now. Me too. You right. know, to stretch the form, you know. Um, so what's next for you, Trayvon? I know one thing I want to talk about, um, you're a photographer too. Yes. And you were down at the border recently. Yeah, I went to uh, Tanillo, Texas, El Paso. How did that come about? Um, while I was still working on camping uh, with Lena Dunham and Jenny mm-hmm. Connor, um, they were putting together, or some a group was putting together a rally at the border, mm-hmm. and they wanted to make sure that enough it got enough press attention and enough people knew about it, right. and that this story of these detained kids and separated families wouldn't start to die because of lack of publicity. Once it's off the... The breaking news, yeah, the and, CNN breaking and news, and people forget about it, and, it, and Fox and, isn't snotty about it anymore, right? Or you right. people get bored with the story. Yes, they wanted them to put together a group of people who had a lot of like public influence and social media presence mm-hmm. to come down, be a part of it, talk about it, post about it, so that they could keep the narrative going. And so uh, Jenny and Lena asked me if I would go, mm-hmm. and I was Jenny like, Connor, yeah, Jenny mm-hmm. Connor, and I mm-hmm. immediately said yes, like. Mm-hmm. Like I responded so fast right. to that text, and and why did you want to take pictures? Um, because like as a as a photographer myself, like I love taking pictures. I think pictures uh, are so powerful in in telling stories mm-hmm. and, and changing the way people see events. Mm. Because like anything, with, depending on how you use the lens, you can mm-hmm. tell. You can make people think whatever you want to think. Like the famous. Right. Uh, civil rights picture of the dog lunging at the yeah, at I was the thinking boy the same thing that like changed the tide of the civil rights movement. It's fascinating how that is not accurate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. And the picture, what you see, is nothing at all like what's it's actually not what, ha- actually, what actually, happened. actually happened. Yes, but like that picture on the front page of papers turned the tide Completely. in the civil rights movement. It did what, what it was. It did what it was intended <laughs> it did, to do. Yeah. but it wasn't really the truth. Exactly. Yes, and so uh, which. So which one's more honorable? Right, right, yeah. yeah you it's like, a fascinating thing about photography. And, it, and Vietnam War had a lot of those same issues. Yeah, the my, my lie, like the yes, the the photos, mm-hmm. it, they really can affect how people feel about a thing. Yes. and so I wanted, being that I've like gotten so into photography, I wanted to like talk to people and take pictures mm-hmm. and like show people. A through my eye, like what this was like. Okay, and, so do you have an intention to? Document or do you have an intention to tell a story? So I when I'm shooting on the street, like in New York, when I'm at home in New York, mm-hmm. I'm looking for moments that just resonate with me. Mm-hmm. I've shot four or five rallies and protests now, and 
when I go do documentation style photography, I'm looking for uh, the story, like how to tell the story that I think is happening here. Mm-hmm. But also I'm looking for a moment, like a powerful something that people can see and connect to this thing. Like the photo, the one I always think about the most from that uh that day is the photo of the Latino guy in the hat that says immigrants make America great. Mm-hmm. And I took like a nice, like tight uh, uh, portrait of his face. Mm-hmm. And to me, like that summed up the whole thing, which was this guy, like a lot of the people out there were undocumented and I, like the border people were right there. They could have mm-hmm. created havoc in that whole, that whole rally, but they just let us be. Mm-hmm. And and I wanted people to see how many people there who didn't have to be there. Like, there were a lot of white supporters who were there with signs that, like, very clearly said, this is our fault. <laughs> like, mm. we did this to, to them, and it's our job to fix it. We're, like, mm-hmm. taking responsibility for it. Uh, the thing they always try to put on us, like, about our community or, mm-hmm. like, things that are happening. Um, and so I wanted to to really— bring that story back with me because it was a place that, one, they wanted us to come there to bring attention to it. I knew I had a platform. Mm-hmm. I knew there were people I could reach out to who could, like, get these pictures beyond my Instagram if I wanted to put them there. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to my friend Bill Shapiro, who, who works at Getty Images, mm-hmm. and and I just asked him, like, hey, what can I do with these? Like, uh, is there somewhere, like, I can publish these besides like Instagram or uh, Flickr or something. And he uh, he was like, I want to do an As Told By on our photo, on our Getty photo blog. And so I did an interview with them about the event, and then they took it and used like 20 photos or so from the thing uh, and put my story interwoven with the photos. And um, I just felt like, it was the least thing, like being present there and helping bring their story back mm-hmm. to a place to like spread it out even more was like the least I could do as a citizen who cares about what's happening to people in this country. Yes. And you're certainly, I think it's fair to say you're an activist, right? Sure. Or you certainly I, have. I, I try to be. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, it's, not my, of- it's not my full time job, but. I, well, I, there's nothing yeah, to I do can, about it. Yeah. You're, you're passionate about the world. Right. I guess, and so when I, you see in, I, an injustice, you can't stop yourself. I accept. I can accept that. Yeah. There's, yeah. Nothing, there's nothing you can do about that, yeah. Trayvon. <laughs> right. Sorry. You can laugh all you want. You know? <laughs> uh, and I think you view what's going on now as maybe a culture war. Sure. You know, a lot of things are happening. Right. Politics is one thing. You know, you have an eye for that and an ear. Right. But I think I, it feels like you're more about this culture war. Like the thing at the border has more to do with the culture war as well as yeah. a political thing. So do you think maybe one of your evolutions is kind of a war correspondent? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> funny you said that because mm-hmm. as much as I love shooting rallies and protests. Yes. I thought about that, yeah. and I was like, "Would I want to go to a war zone, yeah. or would I want to go to a place where, like, but a cultural like, war is what I'm like, talking about? Yeah, like a place where, like, you could die or like some shit, you're, like really. Or you're down. telling stories that we don't get to see, yeah, because the culture war is happening in front of us, 
And it's a thing that mm-hmm. I personally can relate to. So, I, and I I go there with that in mind of like knowing that like separating families dates back to slavery. Like that's not a new thing. Like it's exactly. a thing that happened to Native Americans, and it happened to us, and it happened. It's a thing that that a tool of white supremacy that yeah. keeps being pulled out of the toolbox. Yeah. Whenever it happened we on get Claudine it. with James Earl Jones and. and <laughs> 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 I go back to black exploitation movies for all my references. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a thing that, like we we recognize the pattern. Yeah, and I recognize the pattern, and at the end of the day, like I will I will always care more about people and what's happening to us mm. in the world, not just in America, but in the world right. than I do about like writing a script. Awesome. Well, people are going to care about how much you care about things. because <laughs> You really have a, just a interesting view on things, but I have to say before we go and thanks so much for, for being our guest, but I, I have to say my favorite thing about Trayvon, you guys, follow him on Twitter. If you, if you were not, it's at Trayvon, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because, Anytime Donald Trump, anytime <laughs> President Trump tweets, Trayvon comes right there. Like he's sitting in the room with him. It is hilarious. It's one of the funniest things in the world because you treat it say, no, no, motherfucker, you didn't say that. Right. You know, it's this, that, and that. Or how about this stupid? You, you know? can't block me, which yes, is great. Exactly. He legally can't block me. It's the funniest <laughs> thing in the world to watch your comebacks of Donald Trump. You, I mean, must, you must enjoy that. Come I, on. I do. It's like the only. It's like as close as I can get to like hoping yes. he sees me like shit on him and there's nothing he can do about right. it. Like, and I, you know, he reads them because he retweets. Of course he does. And he like, like, yeah. so it's just like a matter of like hoping one gets through. Yes. But yeah, I'll never not enjoy that because it's just like if this is if if you've decided this is your platform. Yeah. Then right. Okay. Then it's like, on. Yeah. Like it's we're doing on. this. Yes. Like it's happening. It's on. Motherfucker. <laughs> Two hundred eighty. Let's do right. it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, last question. LeBron, man. You um, I'm ecstatic. I'm so yeah, happy. Me too. I'm, I'm so happy. glad. I go, I've been like blowing this horn since it for yep. two years. I've been yep. saying LeBron's coming. You called it. LeBron's coming. And yep. um, I'm excited to see what happens. Yeah. I'm going to get my Blaze pizza on. <laughs> I'm going to get my LeBron gear. LeBron's not going to show up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, LeBron disappointed me. <laughs> I'm going to be crying when LeBron doesn't show up. I'm going to I'm gonna be the full LeBron fan, man. Yeah, man. I'm I'm gonna, I, I said get LeBron's the person who will finally maybe get me to put on a purple yes. and gold jersey. Finally. Come on, man. I'm just like, those colors, man, I like... I, I'm a fan, but I just can't. Like, it's just, what do you wear with purple and gold other than, like, to the game? Oh, stop it. Like, pinstripes are, are the thing to wear <laughs> no, in the summer. No, because think about so. it. Yankees uniforms, when do they wear the pinstripes? Almost never. Whatever. It's like it's always the solid gray or the or the solid white. The the And their gear colors are always solid blue, gray, or white. Like, oh, colors yeah. that go a dark night, like, go with, like, you can wear with, like, a lot yeah. of things, but like purple and gold don't go with a lot of things. Like I maybe have one pair of shoes and that's a Lakers jersey. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I can't argue with this because you're right. You're right. Actually, when you said purple and gold, like, I can think of well, Prince did pretty well. Yeah, I, guess. I mean, like if you're a Bulls fan, you got red and black, the red, easiest yeah, fucking colors true. in the that world to match easy. with. Yeah, but like we have a very unique color scheme to our All team. Right. Well, New York is more of a fashion capital than I mean. Thank God you're not a Knicks fan. Orange and blue. No, that's oh, terrible. Don't even get me that's started. That's even worse. What? I don't even know what that is. That's, that's just, like the 
bad the business end of a Rubik's cube or something, you know? <laughs> it's like, what is that? Blue What's and going orange. On? I know what's going on. All right, Trayvon Free, he's out there, you guys. He's telling his story. He's telling our stories. He's and he's uh, he's slapping back at the president <laughs> with much needed commentary. Thanks, man. Thanks, Larry.